This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. So tonight, my good friend Jen Peoples has agreed to be on with me. I originally had invited Jen to come on and talk a little bit about the situation with Twitter and Elon Musk, because Jen is very active on Twitter. But in the meantime, there have been some horrifying events, mass shootings that have occurred. And if we're going to talk about Twitter, we should probably maybe talk about it a little bit later, but start with what is currently the more important issue of what's happening right now, especially in the LGBTQ shooting at Club Q. So welcome, Jen. Hey, thank you. So we had been talking a little bit pre-show about thoughts on the Club Q situation. I was saying how it was a little overwhelming because there was sort of these headlines and investigation into a shooting on a school bus of college athletes that was kind of ongoing. And then suddenly there was this Idaho mass stabbing that occurred with college kids. And then that had the headlines and then Club Q hit and we're still doing the vigils for Club Q. And now there's this Walmart shooting and we are right back into the pre-COVID pattern of here come the mass shootings again. And we still have the same folks saying, oh, it's too soon. We don't need to politicize this. Let's see what happens. And And the usual suspects popping up to say, oh, well, what you need to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And apparently from the Club Q shooting, what you need is a retired army major and a trans woman, both unarmed. The whole idea of the solution to gun violence being more guns on the streets is demonstrably problematic. I've talked before on the show about the research done through Johns Hopkins in conjunction with a lot of international groups to look at gun violence and evidence-based change that could mitigate gun deaths and Mm -hmm. gun crime. And one of the things that you see over and over again is more guns, more gun deaths. No matter how you slice and dice it, more guns, more gun suicide, more guns, more gun accidents. More guns means more gun violence. And I'll be posting some links about that in the description so that people can see where I'm pulling this information from. I'll have the Coursera free course. I really encourage folks to take it. It gives a lot of information on what works and what doesn't what impacts gun violence, what doesn't. And some of that is helpful because our conversation around gun violence sometimes gets hijacked by issues that have very little bearing on gun violence. For example, mental health really only has a massive impact when you're looking at suicides. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to reduce suicide, which, hey, if that's what we want to do, keeping guns out of people's hands is probably a good idea. That'll bring down suicides 
if you want to address mental health and guns, that's where the two intersect the most. If you talk about mass shootings, though, it's not generally the case that mental illness has caused a mass shooting. And what's really right. sad is that if a shooter has a history of mental illness, people will glom onto that even though it's not relevant. So mm-hmm. a person can have depression and can commit a mass shooting, and that mass shooting has nothing to do with their depression. But people don't understand that. They hear mental illness and they just immediately think, ah, oh, the person was unbalanced. That's why they shot a bunch of people. A lot of that is it's both irresponsible reporting and it's an irresponsible portrayal of certain mental illnesses in popular media, television, movies, and everything, where you have somebody who is, for example, schizophrenic, and they become violent, and they're disconnected from reality, and they go on a killing spree. People that are schizophrenic, and they have that kind of break with reality, it's almost never the case where it's just this sudden break. There are always events that lead up to that that people know about. Well, and those people are more likely to end up getting shot maybe by a cop than they are to shoot people. So they would, first of all, have to get their hands on a weapon, the whole chain of things that would have to happen. And I'm not saying that you can't be mentally ill and that that cannot ever contribute. In fact, Johns Hopkins does talk about how there are certain types of crises that could impact that, but they're Mm -hmm. very isolated and very rare. And so they are in favor of certain types of screening Mm -hmm. that would help identify when someone is in crisis. But in general, if someone has a mental illness, they're probably going to go their life. They're never going to shoot anybody. So it's really not statistically a problem. They're more likely to use the gun to injure or kill themselves than to harm someone else. So when it comes to Club Q, there's a little bit of an intersection between what we were going to talk about regarding Twitter and what we're looking at with Club Q, because I don't think that it can be viewed in a vacuum. I think that everybody that's paying attention, understands rhetoric that has been escalating, that is vilifying the LGBTQ plus community is very much responsible for what's going on here. So we have an entire group of people who believe that stochastic terrorism is a valid tool and it is a tool that is legal in this country. Basically, you can say things from a large platform that put entire communities at risk, that put targets on the individual backs of members of those communities that make them live and walk and navigate society in fear while you walk around completely untouched and unafraid and at no risk because Mm -hmm. folks in that community don't normally have a huge platform where they can broadcast this kind of information. Like Herschel Walker is running these anti-trans ads in the wake of what happened at Club Q. You have all kinds of horrible statements about the community comparing these people to child molesters, groomers, sexualizing children, child predators, they're being presented to the conservative public that is consuming conservative media, like Tucker Carlson, listening and following tweets by people like Herschel Walker or Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene, or take your pick of these extremist MAGA candidates. And they all are right there ready to vilify this community and say things that would terrify people to think that their children are at risk here. And events that have been going on, like these drag queen story hours, have been going on for years. The only harmful thing about them is the scary protesters that make everybody fearful. They're the frightening thing. They're the threat to the children. not And and they're the ones that if I had a small child, I would be reluctant to take my child past those protesters because of the potential for harm. 
you're right about the stochastic terrorism. Certain people feed this garbage. Let's face it, they're pretty ignorant people and they're very fearful. They suck this stuff down and absorb it. If you truly believe that children are being led into this library to be sexually abused in some way by a drag queen, you may feel a need to act on that. And so when someone does act in a violent way against the LGBTQ community, whether it's assaulting someone in front of a library or shooting up a nightclub, all of these people act so surprised, like, oh, well, how could we have predicted this? It's like, you caused it. You triggered this. You fed them this propaganda until one of them decided to act. This was the intent. When I saw Lauren Boebert's tweet offering her thoughts and prayers or however she worded it, it's one thing to accidentally hit somebody with your car Mm -hmm. and then express real remorse and say, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to cause you injury or harm. Mm -hmm. But I think that if I ran you down on purpose... And then made this act of pretend sincerity. That's pretty violent. In addition to the physical violence and the trauma that I've inflicted on you, I'm now mocking you and taunting you with this fake apology. It's gaslighting the community, pretending that you didn't do this on purpose to harm the community. I'd be less offended if, you know, you ran over me and you backed up again. (laughs) You know, while they're pushing legislation to make life horrible for trans children, for trans parents, for trans adults, for trans families, parents of trans children, doctors trying to treat trans children. I think it was Tucker Carlson who ran a segment where he literally posted the photos and identities of the doctors that are offering gender care. And it's not that these doctors are hiding. They are available to people just like any doctor. But when you put them up there and you're vilifying them and saying that they are chopping up children's bodies and mutilating these kids and these doctors are doing all these weird things and you're telling people this person is, is a danger to children and walking the streets and nobody will do anything about it. And here's who they are and they're in your community. So maybe someone should do something about it, right? It's exactly what they did to abortion providers which got a lot of them killed. Right. Clinics bombed. Not only that, but they are telling people all these things that these doctors are mutilating these children and doing all these terrible things to them. And all of that is a lie because transition care for young children is social transition. And then later they can get puberty blockers, but no child is subjected to surgical transition care until they're old enough to make that choice for themselves. All of this stuff is a lie. One of the Republicans in Texas, they're outing people, so I'll out him. He's not ashamed of it anyway. It's Patterson, Republican from Frisco. He has filed a bill that will make any kind of transition care like that. It will be considered child abuse. and It'll be a felony. It basically means that trans kids in Texas can't get medically age-appropriate care. I mean, what gets me is in Florida, for example, There was a a doctor's board that actually had to implement what you're describing. So you're describing this this situation in Texas where it was a politician that was doing this. But in Florida, it was a board of doctors that did this. And the AMA says that gender care is required care, that you can go to the AMA and read statements from the AMA president saying that this is appropriate care, that these people need this care. When you have doctors that are in a state denying what is often life-saving care. Right. 
why can't the AMA do so? I wrote a letter to the president of the AMA and I said, I'm looking at your article right here on the AMA website saying that this gender care is necessary, that it is required care, that people do need it. And you have a group of doctors in Florida that are undoing this. I've seen the AMA decline to get involved in situations that I think are clear violations of medical ethics. I think the state actually licenses doctors, but I, I, I know that you can, you have to be licensed in a state kind of like a lawyer, but can't yeah. like a, can a national bar association do something to a lawyer, sanction a lawyer? Does it have to be the state bar? Yeah, I think that the AMA should be more active in sanctioning doctors. They're clearly violating their oath to first do right. their home. They're, they're doing what AMA says is harmful. Mm-hmm. And they're forcing other doctors to do harm. And these same people that are filing these bills saying, hey, we're going to make gender care child abuse here. They're going to be shocked and horrified when these kids just kill themselves because they don't have any other choice. You've taken all of the choices away from them. They literally can't control what kind of puberty they experience. Mike Pompeo now is targeting teachers. He has put out a statement saying that the president of the National Teachers Association is the most dangerous woman on the planet, that they're teaching filth to children, the same anti-LGBTQ plus stuff. He's putting a target on their backs. And once again, the National Teachers Association and the AMA, and they can post statements, but I wouldn't have found that statement if I didn't go looking for it. Right. But Pompeo's statement gets headlines and Walker's ads are probably blasting all over the place. You don't have to go looking for them. They're in your face. Yeah. Because these people have huge platforms. So you can say free speech because, okay, the AMA is supporting it on their website and the National Teachers Association can make a statement. Um, The president was actually on a national program today. But how does that compare to a former secretary of state saying you are the most dangerous woman in the world right now Mm -hmm. in an environment where people are taking statements like that and then carrying out literal executions in the public sphere as it trickles down from people like Pompeo, people like Walker, the pushback on that just can't compare. So when you have free speech, yes, everyone can say their piece, but some people's piece has a huge megaphone and other people's piece You can't find it unless you go looking for it. And that's the problem. This kind of terroristic speech that our society deems legal and non-threatening, even though we're seeing people killed, and everybody can see the connection between the way we didn't see this stuff and then the rhetoric gets hot and now people are firebombing a donut shop because they're hosting a drag queen story hour and they're protesting in front of a church because they're hosting a drag queen story hour and all of these little story hours were going on for years and didn't have this issue yeah so we know (laughs) that suddenly as the rhetoric is getting hot on one side of the aisle and then the violence is starting and people are getting killed this isn't mysterious there's nothing mysterious about this meanwhile you've got one of the cheerleaders for this kind of rhetoric Jim Jordan is sitting in Congress now, and he has been credibly implicated in the cover-up of sexual abuse on a wrestling team. You know, nobody on the right is all up in arms about that because they brushed that aside and said that was no big deal. You've had people now being convicted for January 6th, and you've still got people on the right saying that was no big deal. But it was this kind of inflammatory rhetoric that inspired that. 
you've had people from a hillbilly militia up in Michigan who've been convicted of a plot to kidnap and probably kill the governor of the state. And they're just brushing these things aside. When does someone get held accountable? The only person we've seen so far that's been seriously held accountable for this kind of rhetoric has been Alex Jones. And he was so over the top and pointedly, deliberately cruel to those families that I don't think the verdict could have happened any other way. And his lies were more specific. He made his so specific that it could be demonstrated in court that not only did he know he was lying, but these other folks are using language that you and I would not define the words the way they're defining them. But to them, even exposing a child to a drag queen is this horrifying, harmful thing to a child. That's how they view it. But it's still getting people killed, and it's still completely undemonstrated fear. And I don't believe for a minute that most of them even believe it because we were talking pre-show about this until I was like, we have to start recording. Yeah. Uh, but I mentioned that when I grew up, I was a child and there was a comedian who had a regular TV show named Flip Wilson. Yeah. Everybody loved him. He was hilarious you know, at the mm -hmm. time. Now, I should check that statement because I have not watched Flip Wilson in a really long time. And whenever I go back, to watch old shows that I really loved, a lot of times I see things that are severely inappropriate that I just didn't oh, yeah. recognize at the yeah. time. So grain of salt, not having gone back and rewatched Flip Wilson. So I, I don't know how it how it has aged, but everybody at the time thought he was hilarious. He was a very common thing in everybody's living room during primetime TV. He had this variety show. And one of the main characters that he did that everybody loved was this spicy woman named Geraldine. Mm -hmm. So he would put on the, the drag and get out there and do Geraldine, and he was phenomenal, and everybody loved it. There was no church-going people who were losing their shit over yeah. Flip Wilson doing Geraldine. We went to a conservative church, and my whole family would sit and watch Flip Wilson, and he would do Geraldine, and we would laugh because he was you know, great. The routine was great. And we talked, I think, pre-show about how this is performance. This is performance art. Some of right. it is impersonation of singers like Cher or Diana Ross. It's just all good, campy fun. There wasn't a problem with this. At the same time that we were watching Geraldine on television, people would go down to the one gay venue in town and do what was known as gay bashing. And I don't know <laughs> how that label has aged, but what it literally meant was some pissed off straight boys would go down to a gay bar and wait in the parking lot and then attack the patrons when they would leave and do violence mm -hmm. to them and assault them, you know, batter them, sometimes kill them. At the same time, we we're watching a guy doing drag performance every week on television and everybody's laughing about it. So yeah. some things were accepted, some things weren't. What's happening is they're sort of mixing it up. What they're really upset with is the trans community. That's their primary target. The vitriol that's directed toward the trans community is completely unwarranted. There's also this component of confusing drag performers with transgender women in particular. We were talking earlier and you were saying that a lot of this is bringing back that older feeling that we had back in the day and me as a straight person. I still remember growing up with the concept of gay bashing and, you know, understand that it's different when you're standing on the other side of it. But still, the gay and lesbian community grew up as well with the threat of violence and worked very hard to make gains. You're married now <laughs> to your mm -hmm. wife. 
that would not have been possible when I was younger. And so there was all this progress made. And so now we're seeing this same kind of hate being drummed up. And you were mentioning how it had that same feel to you. And someone else had mentioned that to me as well. And I had raised the issue, though, and made the point that back when I was younger and this was happening, most folks were not out. You had not made these strides. People didn't know a lot of gay people. Or if you did, you didn't know they were gay. What we were dealing with then is not what we're dealing with now, because what we're dealing with now is most people know gay people or have yeah. gay friends or, you know, are used to the idea of, of gay couples being married. We also have a situation where because more youth has been encouraged to come out, you have a lot more young people with gay friends, with lesbian friends, with trans friends. They're interacting. They know these people. They yeah. go to school with these people. They work with these people. We are integrated now and we all know somebody that's in this community, at least if not a lot of people that are in this community. And that makes it very hard to sell the evil villain narrative on the same broad public network. You still have the dangerous people that you can sell it to that go out and do that same violence that we saw decades ago as a common thing. But what you don't have is the same amount of ignorant people. There are a lot more people that are more informed now because they have friends in the community. I just remember back when I was on active duty in the army. This was even before Don't Ask, Don't Tell became the policy. You know, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was the de facto policy, even though that wasn't the way it was written. And in fact, Don't Ask, Don't Tell limited a commander's ability to retain someone that they knew was gay because the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy required them to discharge someone. The previous policy, the commander could exercise some discretion about that. But, you know, it was one of those things that you didn't want that brought to light anyway. And so there was an awful lot of fear around it because we would go to gay bars preferably someplace far enough away from the military installation that it wasn't somebody wasn't going to be accidentally driving by and see you coming out of a gay bar. But, you know, you go to a gay bar, and the biggest fear coming out of the gay bar, especially if you saw the bashers sitting in the parking lot, you know, waiting for their victim. So there's the fear about getting beaten or if you were a woman getting raped. But there was also the fear of you're going to have to file a police report because you can't show back up to your unit all beat to hell and not have somebody ask questions about that. So you got to right. follow a police report. They're going to find out you were at the gay bar. And so not only are you going to endure a beating, it's going to end your military career. It feels like we're on that slide back to we're going to vilify this to the point where nobody can be out anywhere. And if you're out, you're going to get the crap beat out of you. You might get killed and you're going to lose your job, everything. The original wave of progress that was made within your community didn't really impact trans people as much. Right. And then yeah. when trans people started to actually come out and say, we would like our rights as well, like we mm -hmm. feel left behind in this community, which was something that I heard a lot from my friends who are trans, they were just like, okay, when do we get ours? And so oh. they have stepped forward and they have made strides. Now, a lot of folks who are targeting the community feel like they can make more progress from a negative standpoint. They can make more progress against the community by targeting trans people because now so many people have friends who are gay and lesbian. It's kind of hard to paint that and vilify that because people yeah. know people and it's like, no, my friend is fine. And, you know, but trans people have still that fear of coming out or when they do come out, they still have to deal with so much. 
at this point, I feel like they can still twist and lie and misrepresent that community because the rest of society is so ignorant still about it. So it's easy to own their narrative. And this goes right back to that free speech Twitter issue. When you have the megaphone, when you have the giant platform and, quote, everyone has free speech, you get to own the narrative for the person who has the tiny, tiny platform or no platform at all. You get to tell the lies and put the target on them, and they really don't have a voice in response to you. This is what was so grotesque about Elon Musk coming into Twitter and saying, we need to foster, quote, free speech, because when he first came in, there was this wave of racist sentiment that was expressed. The N-word trended really hard on Twitter. And his response was to say, oh, I'm being attacked by these bots. Like, it's not really happening. This is just this bot attack or whatever. This isn't for reals. Yeah. And so I went back and looked at some of the things that had been reported to see if they were still there. And some of them had been taken down or moderated. The accounts had been closed or the tweet was gone. But a lot of it was still there. And the accounts were real. You know, these are real people. This is real accounts. And these tweets are still existing on the platform. Mm -hmm. So there was this sense that people could now be bigots again openly in the past week. A trans friend of mine sent me a video link to the YouTube channel for the Babylon Bee. And I've heard about Babylon Bee, but I really didn't know what it was. It was one of those things where I recognized the name, but I didn't know what it was. Yeah, I've heard of this before. I don't know what it is. So I look at the video and it didn't take long before I realized it was an anti-trans video. Mm -hmm. At 39 seconds, I just turned it off. And I wrote back to my friend and I said, well, I made it into 39 seconds and I had to turn that off because it's just disgusting. I couldn't watch it. This was just vile anti-trans garbage and it's disgusting. Later that day, Elon Musk, it's announced, reinstates the Babylon Bee, which at that point mm -hmm. in my head, I was like, okay, now I know what it is. Now I recognize what they represent, not just name recognition. I literally just watched a video that was so horrifyingly bigoted. I'm cis and I couldn't even watch it. And this is the account that you're putting back on that is your free speech concern. This yeah. is the kind of garbage that you want to put back onto Twitter. So what Musk is doing is just reintegrating dominant culture bigotry into the platform. Free speech is that's what it's code for. He tweeted out something, I think, in the last week or so about on Twitter, you'll have freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. So basically, all of this hateful stuff will get widely boosted throughout the Twitterverse. And if somebody lashes out at, you know, a vile transphobe, their comment will get bumped down by the algorithm. So it will get less reach, which creates the kind of echo chamber that the right-wing bigots are already accusing the left of cultivating. This is, in fact, a form of deplatforming that they have decried for so many years that, oh, you don't have a right to deplatform somebody. That's a violation of free speech. Free speech has never been what we were taught. Everything I was taught in school when it comes to like U.S. history was a lie. Not that the facts weren't facts, yeah. but that they were presented in such a way as to misrepresent what was actually going on. And free speech was one of those things. So when I was little, I was taught that free speech was there to be there for the little guy. Your oppressive giant platform government is going to have to let you criticize it. They can't just come and drag you off. It's there to protect the tiny platform, the tiny voice. 
And mm -hmm. that is such a load of garbage and not how it works. And yeah. it's not how it was ever intended to work. So, yes, you had this layer of men like the founders who yeah. were very privileged people. And they didn't want a monarch dictating to them in a way that they couldn't criticize it and they couldn't implement changes and they couldn't have a say in it. But they weren't interested in anybody that they saw beneath them having any kind of voice or say or being able to criticize. Women had no voice and no power and no vote, nothing. Right. The enslaved if, person was not allowed to criticize. Right. If a woman was critical in a colony or, you know, elsewhere, yeah. she just got shipped back to Europe and locked up in an asylum. If you're enslaved, you're not going to have a voice and you have no say and you have no leverage to change anything about your situation. You're not even considered a human being, really, except to count as extra political clout for your owner. That was basically the only humanity you were allowed was how did it benefit the person who had enslaved you? People that weren't white couldn't become naturalized citizens, couldn't have a voice or a vote, any say in politics, couldn't be in office. They, they weren't citizens. They weren't allowed to be citizens. Heaven help you if you were disabled. I'm pretty sure oh, you weren't going to get yeah. much of a hearing. So all of the marginalized people that are still marginalized today, they had even less of a platform at a time when these people were championing the noble idea of free speech. Mm -hmm. and, and it had nothing to do with people that were really the huddled masses being able to say something. They couldn't. It was all about the people with the largest platform who were here, who just didn't want the bigger bully in Europe to dictate to them. But they sure right. as hell wanted to be the bully here. And that's what free speech was, mm -hmm. because we can go back and see that's what free speech was. That's what they intended, and that's what they implemented. And now, to this day, you have the wealthy, empowered, privileged, cishet white guy who has bought the big platform and said, I'm pissed off that we can't bully on this platform. So I'm opening the gates and letting the bullies back in because we need to be able to bully everywhere. Yeah, because when some people finally stood up, some marginalized communities of people stood up finally and said, okay, we've had enough of this shit. We're pushing back. We're going to deplatform people that we think are garbage people. Milo Yiannopoulos and Jordan Peterson and people like that. And suddenly they can't go around and spout this hateful rhetoric with impunity. Suddenly yeah. people like Elon Musk are all worried about free speech. And it's like, no, this is freedom of association. This is the marketplace of ideas that you guys worship at. It's saying, hey, we don't want to be around these people. And so what does Elon do? He goes and buys Twitter. He's like, now it's my marketplace of ideas and I'm the autocrat here. And I say these people can come back. Even the guy that drove January 6th. Yeah. Even the man who tried to get a mob to assassinate the House Speaker and the Vice President. To this day, I mean, that's the other thing. Mike Pence, they're saying he has presidential aspirations. But I'm like, if somebody can't get angry... Yeah. over their boss trying to kill them and their family. Oh, yeah. This is not a guy that can lead. Who wouldn't say something if their boss tried to kill them and their family? How okay. do you not respond to that? And not only that, but I will ride this horse from now until hell freezes over. But I want everybody to remember that when Mike Pence was governor of Indiana, he presided over what was at that time the worst outbreak of HIV infection that we had seen in a very long time. And it's because he wouldn't do anything about letting addicts have clean needles. 
In fact, he specifically advocated against that. So he used the power that he had to directly harm marginalized communities. He should own that forever. I don't buy his, oh, I'm a good Christian, all that bullshit. He's a hateful white supremacist to the core. He will never be anything else. Everybody should know this guy does not care if you die. Look at the difference in the vile rhetoric that they're willing to spout at people who have no platform. The vile mm-hmm. rhetoric they're willing to spout at trans people, the vile rhetoric they're willing to spout about teachers. Mm-hmm. But when it's an empowered, wealthy, cishet, white man, you can tell, say to the guy he tried to kill and whose family he tried to kill, is he dangerous? And he won't answer you. How can you not just say, of course he's dangerous. He tried to kill me. Did yeah. you people not see January 6th? Yeah. Yes, he's a dangerous man. Yes, he's a threat to the Republic. They can't even say that. They're terrified of criticizing one another or criticizing somebody with an actual platform that can punch back. But they will beat the crap out of everybody that's smaller than them that can't do anything about it. Part of the problem is under the surface, they all have the same beliefs. So they can't actually go after each other too hard because what are they going to criticize? They all basically believe the same thing. And if anybody had any doubts about that, look how easy People like Mike Pence and Ted Cruz and a lot of these other guys came on board with Trump after he got the nomination. Even now when they get asked, would you vote for Trump? They're like, yeah. Yeah, 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 I think I'll vote for him again. I don't even know what to say to that. I don't either. I did have some notes about this whole Twitter thing and Elon Musk's handling of this situation, which has been a particularly volatile toddler going in and breaking things. It looks like this flavor of extreme utilitarianism. He's made so many statements about how much he loves humanity and he wants to do things for humanity that help everybody. He's decided that he's the one who knows what's best for everyone. Which is scary. It is. He's bought into his own hype. He's created this mystique about himself as this genius. He's surrounded himself with sycophants who won't say no to him. And so that reinforces his belief that he's a genius and that he's always right. It also means that he's not accountable to anyone because who's going to tell him no? Who's going to tell him, hey, dude, that's a bad idea. Firing all of the security people at Twitter is a bad idea. What you were just saying about he doesn't answer to anyone. There was an exchange that he had with Mm -hmm. a congressperson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Senator, get your shit in line. And Musk made some flip comment back. And the guy basically said, the government will take you out. Now, it was sort of this weird back and forth. But, you know, Musk clearly wasn't rattled. What I realized when I looked at that, it's mostly men I see defending him. I think there are people that are marginalized that would defend him as well. But the people that I see are mostly men. So I think that these guys that are defending him see themselves in him. And this reminded me of something in a conversation I had with Rob Poole, where we were both considering why would people vote for Trump? And he was explaining there's got to be something in him that people relate to, that they see themselves in some way, that they see something that resonates with them. And I think when it comes to Musk, the idea that he tells the government to screw off is like that same crypto dude vibe or that same libertarian kind of vibe where the people who think to themselves they want to tell the government to shove it up their ass and when they see musk doing these things he has that money and that power and he can tell the government to go get screwed 
there will be a battle and who knows who's going to win, who's going to win. But Musk will always walk away wealthy. He's not going to lose any wealth or power that's going to make him destroyed. Musk is too rich to fail. So he's going to walk away intact no matter what happens. And he knows this which is why he has yeah. no fear. So if Twitter fails, all that happens is like several thousand employees' lives were disrupted, some of them ruined, mm-hmm. and a bunch of marginalized communities, people who put in loads of work to build communities online in a platform where they could be safe and where they could actually have a voice and where they could actually exercise a platform and speech was torn down. So he will have destroyed lots of marginalized people and other employees at Twitter, but he will walk away unscathed, even if the whole thing gets scrapped. So right. he doesn't give a shit. He's, he's destroying people's lives, disrupting people's lives, and it's nothing to him. It's just kicking an anthill. And he knows right. he's going to walk away, and the ants can't do anything to him. This is, I think, weirdly, what a lot of his fanboys admire about him. Yeah. They see themselves as the person that wants to be able to do this as well. What they're not understanding is that when the government is regulating a thing, you have some say in it. Mm -hmm. I'm critical of the government. And anybody who's listened to this podcast knows that I go on my rants and I have my problems and I want to see the system changed. I would like a different system. I don't think the system works as it should. It works as planned, but it was planned to work in a really evil way. And so I would like to see the system put to use to really make citizen investment. But even in its broken state, we still go vote. And we still got rid of Trump and we still got Biden in instead. And you can argue about whether or not Biden is good or whatever, but it's better than Trump. <laughs> and <laughs> so you have this situation where when the government is regulating a thing, you can go and complain to the person you vote for or whose campaign you donate to and try to affect some change. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but you have input mm-hmm. when it comes to Somebody like Musk coming in and buying this platform, it's like you say, he answers to no one. The government might come after him and maybe they'll have a tussle and maybe something will come of it. But really, we don't vote for Elon Musk. If he's running Twitter and you think you are better off with one king of Twitter ruling all, the guy with the one ring is at the top (laughs) of the pyramid And he doesn't give a fuck what you want or don't want. He's going to do whatever the hell he wants. He answers to nobody, including you. So he's dictating it to you. Whereas the government, you can alter it. You are a participant in that, however small. But with Musk, you've got a tyrant on top of it. And you might think that's great that he's sticking it to the government. But in fact, you have less power in his system than you do in a system where the government runs it. And this is what I think they don't get, is that this guy is actually more of a tyrant than the government would be running the same platform. There were so many of them that jumped on. It was Ed Markey, Senator Ed Markey, who actually does have the power to investigate Twitter and the things that are going on there. He reminded Musk that one of his companies is operating under an FTC consent decree. And the other one, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration is investigating that company because its product has literally killed people. He needs to basically stop trolling people on Twitter, stop picking fights on Twitter and run his companies, or the government will. There were people that responded to that as saying, oh, Ed Markey is abusing his power and he's threatening Elon Musk. And of course, Musk is laughing right now. He's laughing, but Ed Markey actually is in a position to make life exceedingly difficult for Elon Musk. And I understand, yeah, he could give Musk's lawyers something to worry about. 
I don't think that it's ultimately going to be any kind of Federal Trade Commission action or something that brings Musk down, at least not for how he's running Twitter, because he took Twitter private. And that's the other thing is even the shareholders don't have a say in how the company's run anymore because Musk took it private when he bought it. So there's not even that thin veneer of... Well, he got rid of the board. He just made himself king. Yeah, it's all him. Like you said, he doesn't care because having that kind of obscene wealth creates a very secure safety net. He's not going to get hurt. He's not going to be destitute or anything like that. What will, I think, impact him is the fact that Tesla is intimately tied to Musk. And every time he misbehaves on Twitter, Tesla stock takes a dive. Ultimately, that might be the thing that reigns him in. It might, but the reality is when people have that kind of money, literally the wealthiest man in the world, Nothing's going to take him down. Nothing will ever take him down. Mm. He will be wealthy and influential until the day he dies. And that's just a fact of the way our system works. And it doesn't matter how badly he screws up. Until then, he will always have his little fanboys that run around and talk about what a genius he is. I mean, I look at the decisions he's made. And if I take a step back and think, okay, he's eccentric and he does things in ways that I wouldn't actually do. And I try to look at it through that lens. What I still see is incompetence. You've heard of the Peter Principle, where you rise to the level of your incompetence. He's blown past that limit a long time ago. And then you begin to realize they hire people who know what's what. You have good accountants, good lawyers, good managers, good labor. And this is just the person that's investing the capital. Because when you start really digging into their heads, they are just as mediocre as can be and sometimes weirdly extreme on some things. They're not the geniuses people make them out to be. They are standing on the shoulders of skill and talent that doesn't have access to the capital. Mm -hmm. They need his capital and he can exploit their labor and their intellect. I mean, I realized that, you know, Musk created a couple of smaller companies based on some financial software early on in his career and ended up making a lot of money when he sold that stuff. That's been quite a while ago. It's been a long time since he actually created anything. And I would argue that the stuff he created back then was fairly minuscule, even though he got paid a ridiculous amount of money for it. I remember when he, there were the, the kids trapped in the underwater cave. Yeah. And he suggested a submarine. And I remember thinking, these caves are small and twisty. Yeah. And how are you going to get a, like, it doesn't even make sense. In my head, I'm thinking, well, you know, guy must be, know what he's talking about. He's got all these engineers, so they understand this better than I do, I'm sure. And they submit the plans and the people that were in charge of the rescue were just like, yeah, this is useless. These caves are small and twisty. <laughs> and yeah. I'm just like, really? Like, really? Yeah. yeah. I saw something that that was, to me, just glaringly obvious. And you didn't realize this? The guy that was there that was the like the diver that was helping rescue the kids on site, he really yeah. had some pretty harsh words to say about the idea of putting a submarine in those caverns. Well, it was one of those things that in my head, I was just like, this seems so ridiculous that I must not understand it. Right? Like I'd second guess yeah. myself. I was like, I must just not be smart enough. And then when they came back and said exactly what I saw, I was just like, okay, how did you not see, how did you not see this? What was really bad is that Elon Musk responded to this guy's legitimate criticism of this idea that he had to put a submarine in some caves. He responded by calling the guy a pedophile. And so the guy's like, don't do that shit. And I guess some people on Twitter were like, whoa, dude, what are you talking about? At some point, Elon backed off. He apologized. He deleted those tweets. And then later, 
he went back and he started tweeting that stuff again. He kept calling guy him pedo what guy. I mean, it, is that just the way to you know vilify somebody is to say that they're like molesting children? I mean, yeah. And, I mean, and I do understand that. And let's just for the audience and for people that may be thinking this, you know, I understand the difference between a pedophile and child molester. Like it's not the same thing. But when mm-hmm. somebody aims pedophile at somebody as an attack like that, that's what they're trying to imply is that this person is molesting right. children. And the guy finally, he had had enough, so he filed a defamation lawsuit against Musk. Yeah, as one would if they were accused of molesting children. Musk went into court and defended himself by saying, it's just a figure of speech that we used in South Africa when I was growing up. It just means, you know, a creepy old guy. He literally accused the guy of molesting children. You said he married a child. This was not ambiguous what he was saying. Basically, Musk won that lawsuit. He didn't have to pay the guy. Essentially, he got away with weaponizing this accusation, knowing people respond very emotionally to this kind of allegation. Right, but the fact is, even if the courts would have found against him, he would have had a financial settlement. That would be the end of it. Musk would walk away, still being the wealthiest man on the planet. Nothing's going to touch him. He's insulated by his wealth. He can be as ignorant. He can be as wrong, he can be as mediocre as he wants to be, even subpar, and he's got the money to keep going. It's just like Trump. We got a firsthand look into the window that is Trump's brain when he was president, and he had in no way was competent to hold that position. And yet he gets to be president because this is what happens when you're privileged. You can be president and be completely incompetent for the job. What I've seen so far on Twitter is loads of people leaving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I left. Lots of people left. Just FYI, my account is still there. It's sort of a beacon where people can go to kind of see here's where they can find me now. I do still go back and I still look for follows to see if they're on Mastodon where I have moved, where lots of people I've seen have moved. Yes, and I'm also I, on Mastodon now. Yeah, I updated my Twitter header to reflect my Mastodon account name in case anybody wants to go to Mastodon and find me there. I've got that now as my Twitter header so people can look me up. And I found it really helpful when other people were doing that, which is why I added it to mine. So if you're on Mastodon and if you're trying to help people find you and you have a Twitter account, one good way to do it is to change your name on Twitter to add your Mastodon account so that people can see right away that you've moved. What's weird to me on Twitter, my account is still up technically, although I'm trying to limit my participation there now. One of the things that I've noticed lately is that there's an awful lot of people that are following me now. And when I look, because anybody that's a new follower, I always check their profile. I look at who they're following. It tells me a lot about this person. What's weird is I'm getting a lot of followers lately who just opened their account in October of this year. Now they just decided to follow me. And so just a heads up, if you're one of those folks, I'm probably just going to block you. Why did you decide to join Twitter after Elon took over the place or when it was obvious he was going to have to? And now you've decided to follow me. If you've been anywhere around me on social media lately, you know I'm going to pull the plug on Twitter at some point in the not too distant future. I still participate in some of the threads I see as I'm searching for the folks I follow to kind of see if I can find them now, like, you know, one-to-one over on Mastodon. But I don't post any new content on Twitter um, unless it has to do with me migrating or, you know, an update on me leaving or something. 
I've redirected people to my blog. That's where I started putting my Twitter updates. I just did like a weekly wrap where I saved all the stuff I would have posted to Twitter and put it on the blog. And then when I found Mastodon, I've started kind of migrating there. And I may eventually just put a blog post saying I'm not going to do the weekly updates anymore that I'm done transitioning. And if you want to follow me on Mastodon, you're going to have to go there for the the more faster feed or the more daily feed if you're a public person and not on my Facebook page, which, you know, my Facebook page is pretty limited. So for folks that want to follow me publicly, Twitter was kind of the thing. And I think Mastodon is going to be the thing. I don't think I'll keep doing the weekly updates at the blog once I get comfortable with Mastodon. I think it's just going to replace Twitter and then I'll, I'll redirect people from the blog saying, here's where you can find the updates. Mastodon has a bit of a learning curve. And so I'm still kind of figuring that out now, but I think once I do, I'm probably going to like it better than Twitter anyway. I'm staying on Twitter right now for Black Twitter. And I found a lot of the Black accounts that I followed were actually on uh, Mastodon. So I was very lucky there. That was one of the things I had in my notes was I really loved Black Twitter, Trans Twitter, Indigenous Twitter. Like I loved those Mm -hmm. communities, even uh, disability communities. And I saw a lot of posts that were just heartbreaking posts of people saying, I've lost my community now. And, you know, this is just like, it's gone. And I feel so bad for these people that really can't navigate the rest of society in a safe and effective way because the dominant culture makes life so hard for them. And now the space where they were able to go and feel comfortable in their own skin is been toxified with dominant culture. So now it's just as bad as everywhere out, out in society. When I see that and I saw all these communities that I know these accounts had worked so hard to gain these followings where they could then have some kind of a platform, even if it was within their community, submitting push information. So people like me could sort Mm -hmm. of lurk and learn and see what they had to say and see what the community that responded to them had to say, like what were the different views within the community and how were they looking at it and how were they perceiving these issues? It was so enlightening to me. When I realized Twitter was about to go down the drain, all I could think of was I'm losing all these resources. I mean, I was really kind of panicked about that. And that's why I just started hotly looking them up on Mastodon, trying to find them again to say, can I rebuild this? Can I find this person and follow them there? Because I really want this information. I really want the education that they're offering me here. And Mm -hmm. when I see the, the hard work that they did, I mean, I'm taking advantage of the work that they did. And so they did all this hard work and they built these communities And then this guy from the dominant culture says, you can't have this. We must exist everywhere. The white opinion, the cis opinion, the het opinion, classist opinion, all of that has to be included here or else it's not free speech. And so I need to come in and swoop in and bring all the bigotry back and infuse it into this platform in order to make it what I feel comfortable with and tore down all those communities. Somebody saw some people doing something that was good for their community and they weren't harming anyone else. And they weren't allowed to succeed in the greater, broader community. Right. But it still destroyed a lot of work and effort and community that was built that is just is trashed now because of what this guy did. And I've seen people who support him saying, oh, Twitter's not going to disappear. Maybe it won't. Maybe he will rebrand it and create it as something else. But the Twitter that I valued, 
the thing that gave it value to me and to so many other people is not coming back. Even if the same people are still there in some capacity, there was a sense of safety in the communities that were built in there that's gone now. And there's a sense of impermanence that whatever you painstakingly rebuild in the ashes of this could be swept away again just on a whim of one cishet white dude who decides we're not having this. And I don't want anybody to think that the people on Twitter, you know, that we're a bunch of snowflakes and we're looking for our safe space and stuff like that. If you think that, then you're not obviously in a marginalized community and you've never had your basic humanity questioned or anything like that. This was a carefully curated space where people could go to share experiences and political views and fashion sense, whatever was on anybody's mind. And it was a place that was relatively free from the kind of bigotry that people in marginalized communities have to confront every day of their lives. When we had the atheist community stuff, Mm -hmm. people would comment that you could actually have a conversation without somebody inserting a bunch of religion into it so that it would end up, you couldn't ever have a, a conversation that went beyond arguing about some aspect of God or creationism or whatever. The conservative religious person is going to keep inserting that. They're going to keep inserting their religion. So you can't really have a conversation about issues because you never reach that level. You keep arguing about these religious issues. When we were meeting in a group as atheists, we could have conversations that weren't held back. Everybody would agree on this is the reality that we live in, and then you could proceed from there. So you were already starting, you know, a a step ahead because you didn't have to keep being bogged down by the same arguments in that space where you weren't dealing with religious zealots. And it's sort of like that, except imagine that when you walk somewhere You can't use the bathroom without worrying someone's going to beat you up or report you. It's a level of oppression that we didn't see, but it's it's a similar concept, this idea that we were like saying it's nice to be able to have these conversations. But for people that are even more marginalized, they're basically saying it would be nice if I could use a bathroom without fearing for my safety, or it would be nice if I could access the healthcare that I need and not have to worry about some politician telling me that I'm a child groomer because of it. Politicians encroaching on healthcare, it's fairly horrifying anyway. They've already inserted themselves into one of the most personal decisions somebody will ever make, which is whether and when to have children with this whole abortion thing. You notice that they never pass laws restricting their own right, right. access to bodily autonomy. When yeah. is the last time that when you look at the demographics of power in Congress and in our presidential picks throughout mm-hmm. all of our history, with a very minor exception, when you look at the people who really hold the power, when is the last time they passed laws that infringed on their own bodily autonomy? Yeah, never. I mean, these are the guys that they think it's an infringement of their bodily autonomy to wear a fucking mask. Speaking of which, that's the other thing Elon Musk has been doing is promoting misinformation about COVID. He was forcing his people to come back into a production facility in California during the height of the first COVID wave when there was no vaccine. And he was trying to force people back into the plant to produce cars for him, claiming that it was just a bad cold and the death numbers were overhyped. Dude, we're using reefer vans as portable morgues because we've run out of space here. He was making all these claims, trying to force his employees to put their lives at risk to make him some more cars. 
this is something that happens all the time in American history, like throughout our history, this has been a thing. We had people that were very wealthy running the show. And then when we started to get super wealthy people like Rockefeller and Carnegie, we had these robber barons. Mm -hmm. There was no regulation. It was the Wild West. And they were allowed to pillage the environment, destroy community, like do whatever they wanted because they had the money to do it. And there were no restrictions on them yet. So when you look at things like the Internet and you say, wow, see how legislation lags behind the Internet? regulation on the internet was always way behind internet progress. And that's how it was with capitalism. These men were amassing wealth like no one had ever seen before. And they were then, like you had said earlier, not answering to anyone. There were no regulations Mm -hmm. because none of this stuff had been done. They were industrializing these men that were building this industry like railroad and steel. There was a point where Rockefeller was supposed to take a train and the train that he was supposed to be on derailed. At the time, it was a really, really horrible, well-known accident. It was something that was very publicly seen. They called it the, I think it was the Angola Horror. He interpreted not being on that train as a sign from God. He felt that God had a destiny for him Wow. and that what he was doing was implementing that destiny. Yeah. And he did huge amounts of destruction to people, to the environment. I mean, a lot of what he was doing was pissing contests with other wealthy capitalists. He was competing with them. And these competitions were destroying people's lives. They didn't care if tons of people who had come in from rural farming areas to take these jobs and given up everything they had and had nothing but this job lost the job. Mm Mm-hmm. There was no social safety net. Today, we complain about the inadequacy of the social safety net. Back then, there wasn't one. Right. You lost your job. Guess what? Your family starved. Mm -hmm. Literally. New York was full of orphans running around in the streets. I don't know that people really understand that we were shipping orphan children off the streets of New York to the Midwest to be adopted by families that put them to work or whatever happened to them. You know, some of them, we know what happened to them. Some of them we don't, because it's not like there was a great system in place. It was just people trying to help. Anyway, these men had visions and those visions had nothing to do with what was best for people. They had it in their heads that whatever they were doing was what really mattered and that they should be the arbiter of the lives and the deaths of the peons that they used to fight their ego battles with one another. And that's what we've got going on here. We have a guy who is that big, who can do that damage, who is doing that damage, and who isn't worried about anybody making him be called to account, whether that be the people that he's harming, whether that be international governments. He just does not care. And he knows he doesn't need to. And he's going to be every bit as dangerous as a Rockefeller. So he's made several statements repeatedly about how much he loves humanity. But aside from the the COVID denialism, which is definitely not in humanity's best interests, if he just had mountains of money to light on fire, he's now made Austin his new home. We have a massive homeless problem here. You could have done something about that for a lot less than $44 billion. I read an article, and I might post a link to it in the description, but it was an insider article, a guy who writes on Inside Tech, and he had some thoughts on the prior Twitter administration and also Elon Musk. And one of the things he was describing 
is that Musk's concern for humanity is like species driven. He doesn't care about people on an individual level. He's not mm -hmm. worried about people suffering homelessness. Those are collateral. And what concerns him is people are going to be the first interplanetary species. Yeah. He wants to get people on Mars. And to him, if the human race is still existing, then he has succeeded. The way he's looking at humanitarian isn't what you and I think of as humanitarian, actual individual human suffering. Yeah. He's viewing it from a human race surviving. And if crap tons of people suffer, who cares? This concern for this the human race, you know, human species is such a misplaced concern. We're at what, 8 billion on the planet now? It's, we're, we're hardly in danger of extinction here. If we end up unaliving ourselves, it'll be by our own hand. That view that, you know, he's unconcerned with individual actions. It tracks with this idea of this extreme utilitarianism. One of the criticisms is that if you look at what you think will provide the greatest good for the greatest number of people, there's still going to be people that fall through that that will suffer as a result of you pursuing that. With utilitarianism, there's no concern about how you get to this so-called greatest good goal. If he doesn't care about how he gets there, then yeah, what he's doing totally tracks with this extreme utilitarianism philosophy. Yeah, he wants to be king of the Mars people. And I'm fine with that. Let's send him now. <laughs> he can tweet from Mars. Yeah, if, if he gets internet up there. No, he's got Starlink, so he'll just... Like, <laughs> he'll, get an, he'll get an engineer to figure it out. <laughs> oh, that's the other thing I was going to bring up, is that people keep referring to Elon Musk as an engineer. Elon Musk is not an engineer. In order to be an engineer, you have to have an engineering degree from an AVET-accredited engineering school. And he does not. He has a bachelor's degree in physics and another bachelor's degree in economics. He's not an engineer. But with a bachelor's degree in engineering, which depending on the engineering field you choose, could take as much as five years. And that's if you're going to school full time because the curriculum is that heavy. But with a bachelor's degree, if you've passed the fundamentals of engineering exam, once you get the requisite professional experience, you can sit for a professional engineering exam. That's like being board certified if you're a doctor or passing the bar if you're a lawyer. A lawyer. That's the deal with the engineering thing and for all the people that call themselves an engineer when they are. So yeah, he's got engineers that put into practice all the off-the-wall stuff he comes up with. He's backing it with capital. That's what he brings to the table, the money. I followed the Twitter thing with memes on my blog. <laughs> so if mm -hmm. anybody wants to go to the blog and just see those weekly updates, a lot of them were the swirling... Twitter memes. Some of them were really kind of funny and some of them were kind of heartbreaking. It's getting late. We've been on for a couple hours. Yeah. So I just want to say thank you for giving me your time tonight to come and talk about some of these issues. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. I'll All right. talk to you later. All right. Bye bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring. <laughs>